This evening, congregation, we have set before us the man, Thomas, who has come down to us in history as Doubting Thomas, for good reason. Doubting Thomas. To the best of my knowledge, we meet with Thomas only three times on the pages of the New Testament. Just three times. Let's look at those times, because I think it will give us something of a clue as to how to understand Thomas in the chapter that we just read. Now, if you turn to John chapter 11, John chapter 11, and verse 16, this is when Jesus has received the news that Lazarus has died. And Jesus now says, let's go to uh, Jerusalem to see him. But of course, it had been very dangerous for Jesus to go to Jerusalem. And here we get the first uh, clue, first insight into Thomas' character. In John 11 and verse 16, Thomas, therefore, who is called Didymus, by the way, Didymus means the twin, so Thomas must have been a twin. Thomas, therefore, who is called Didymus, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go, that we may die with him. Well, (laughs) You can just hear, can't you? That, that, that statement is just full of this uh, that melancholy, uh, cynical, uh, all, uh, today we would say glass half empty, right? A kind of thinking on the part of Thomas. It's hopeless. We're going to get arrested. We're all going to get thrown in jail. We're all going to die. I mean, you can hear it, right, coming through that, uh, that comment of Thomas. Thomas is a man who sees things darkly. And uh, nevertheless, Thomas doesn't say, well, I'm not going, right? We can see that there's a, there's a deep-seated loyalty in the heart of this man, and he says, I'm going to go with him. So Thomas, in the first place, Thomas, in John 11, verse 16, let us also go that we may die with him. The second time we meet Thomas is in John chapter 14. John 14 And verse 5, I put that there in the outline for you, but let me just give you the context here. John 14 is that very famous chapter, right, that begins, Let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Wonderful words, right, which should instill faith and confidence in Jesus that no matter what may happen to him in the future, no matter what may happen to us in the future, we can rest in him. uh, Jesus continues, In my Father's house are many dwelling places, Right? Even after we die, Jesus has a, a place for us. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. What a, what a wonderful pleasure that is to, to hear. And verse 4, and you know the way where I am going. And then Thomas interrupts. Verse 5, John 14, verse 5. Thomas, you might say, He's had enough. He interrupts. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How do we know the way? And I I like the paraphrase on this from one of the translations. It captures kind of the sense of it. No, we don't know, Lord, Thomas said. We have no idea where you are going. So how can we know the way? Again, do do you sense something of the edge on his voice, right? A bit of a frustration with the way that Jesus is taking. It's not the way that Thomas was looking for. It's not the way he was expecting. It's not what he wanted. And so Thomas 
frustrated, says, Lord, we have no idea where you're going. But, but Thomas, hasn't Jesus just been saying the confidence, the trust? Jesus knows he's preparing a place for you. Well, where exactly are you going? Right? What does all this mean? There's so much uncertainty and Thomas can't take it. He wants to know. He wants it laid out clearly before him. Right? And by the way, now you can kind of see some connections between, between this and the chapter that we have, right, where Thomas says, unless I see, right, you can see kind of that connection. Before I leave this section, though, of who is Thomas, I want to back up to my previous point. I see I missed a point there. In, oh, no, this, this applies to this chapter in John 14. But look at in John 13, verse 37, if you have your Bible, just by contrast, look at Peter. Again, you see the different personalities. Look at uh, verse 37, John 13, right, where Simon Peter says, I'm sorry, verse 36, Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? So really the same kind of question, right? And Jesus says, where I go, you cannot follow me now, but you shall follow later. I mean, you might say that's almost worse than like what the answer he gave to Thomas. And yet look what Peter says, verse 37. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you right now? I will lay down my life for you. What, what, a, what a difference you see, right, between Peter, who's like, let's go. I'm ready right now. Where to? Right? That's his attitude, right? That's his character. Thomas is like, Lord, I need to know. I need to know them. Give me a map. I need to know where we're going. I want to know every step along the way. Where are we going to stop? Where are we going to start? How fast are we going to go? Right? Thomas wants all these details filled in. But again, Jesus has always been discipling his disciples to trust, to give it into the hands of Jesus. Let him be the Lord. So Thomas, in these first two instances, we meet him already as a man who is a doubter. He sees things darkly. He doesn't like the uncertainty. But in both situations, my friends, in both situations, I believe you can see that at, at the bottom of his heart, isn't there? It's not like Judas of Iscariot. Judas Iscariot, right? But with doubting Thomas, there's a candle, there's a fire burning. Maybe it's burning low, but it's burning in his heart of love and of loyalty to Jesus. And that candle doesn't go out. Even in Thomas's frustration, you might say his frustration might even be fueled a bit by this love he has for Jesus. He wants to make sure that his relationship with Jesus continues, and he wants to take it in his own hands. But of course, that's not how Jesus leads us through life, is it? Well, let's come then to Thomas's doubt. So that brings us to John 20. This is the third time now we meet with Thomas. And in verse 24... Of John chapter 20, verse 24. But Thomas, one of the twelve, called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. My friends, when Jesus expired on the cross, you might say that last glimmer of hope in Thomas's heart died with it. He had such a love for Jesus. He believed so strongly in the mission of Jesus. But when Jesus died on the cross, that was so contrary to the way that Thomas had for Jesus, the way that Thomas thought it should work out, that when Jesus cried out, it is finished, and then, Father, into thy hands I commit my spirit, the lights went out for Thomas. Thomas. 
the last vestige of hope was erased in his mind. He couldn't see the way anymore. It all became dark. A cloud came down upon him. To such an extent, my friends, that he does not even gather with the disciples anymore. The disciples came together, perhaps even to think about things that Jesus had taught them, to work through that, but Thomas doesn't have any time for that or use for that anymore. It's all come to an end for him. That's why we read that from Psalm 88. Because I think that so accurately captures, if I had to give that, that psalm a title, I'd call it the Psalm of Thomas. I think about those words where the psalmist, Heman, the psalmist, he, 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 uh, he writes, Thou hast put me in the lowest pit, in dark places in the depths. I think that's the place, dear congregation, where God has led this child, his child. And I think in verse 25, when the disciples come to him, and you read those, that last clause, would you read that with me in verse 25? I will not believe. Now, my friends, in the Greek language, there is a unique way of saying no, right? You could say, hey, will you come with me today? You can say no in a regular kind of way. But in the Greek language... There is a way that, again, to put it in English, to paraphrase it a little bit, absolutely not, under no circumstances. And that's what this is. And again, that's not just my interpretation, my friends. That's a very unique grammatical construction in the Greek language. I will not believe. Actually, in the Greek, it's a double negative. I will no not believe is, in essence, what it says. And so here you see, my friends, the despair that has enveloped this man. And no doubt when we, when we think about Thomas's, his, 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 the vigorous way that he says, I will not believe. Again, you can imagine that in all capital letters. I will not believe. That unbelief is fueled by the dreadful letdown that this man had when Jesus died on the cross. When they put Jesus' body in that grave and sealed that tomb with that stone, The disappointment of Thomas was so great. You might say that the disillusionment was real now. And and in Thomas' thought, there's no kingdom. Jesus has said the kingdom of God is here. But now that's at an end for Thomas. Jesus has said everlasting life for those who believe in him. That's out for Thomas. No Savior. No Lord. No Messiah. Jesus wasn't what we thought he was. He isn't what he claimed to be. You see, my friends, it's not just that Thomas doubted that Jesus had risen from the dead, but the resurrection of Jesus Christ was the proof upon the whole mission of Jesus. Not just for Thomas, but for all of us too. The resurrection is that important. And Thomas understands that. And when Thomas doubts the resurrection of Christ, when he sees that that Jesus was laid in the tomb and the stone was sealed, that's the end of it for him. And Thomas sees no further reason why he should even gather with the disciples again. So deep is the despair in this man's mind. And you have to wonder, my friends, didn't it matter at all to Thomas that all ten of the disciples 
We have seen the Lord. They all saw him. And they come to him excitedly. No doubt they knew of Thomas's despair. No doubt they knew the condition of this man's mind, the melancholy nature. And they rushed to him excitedly. Perhaps they each wanted to be the first one. Thomas, he's come. He's here. We've seen him. But even that doesn't sway this man's unbelief. So dark is the despair that this man is in that the eyewitness account of ten people does not move him to believe in the resurrection of Jesus. Ten people, my friends, all saw him. And they could say, Thomas, he ate some of our food. We saw his nail-pierced hands, his wounded side. I will not believe, says Thomas. That's Thomas's doubt. What fueled his unbelief? I think the, the, the love and the devotion he had for Christ and then the, those dashed hopes when Jesus died at the cross. And what was at stake? The whole mission of Jesus was at stake. It wasn't just about, do you believe that Jesus rose from the dead? But the resurrection of, of Jesus from the dead is the key to the whole mission of Jesus. And if Jesus died and if he's in the grave, then it's all over. Now, my friends, I also, I also uh, note here in verse 26, after eight days again, his disciples were inside and Thomas with them. Now, isn't that interesting? That just as in those previous cases, there is a faint glimmer of love. Maybe it's very faint. But my friends, it's not completely extinguished, is it? Because somehow, some way, those disciples were able to persuade Thomas to come with them to one of their meetings. There must have been, my friends, I have to believe, deep in the heart of Thomas, with all the arguments to the contrary, and with the vision of Jesus' body going into that grave and being sealed up, and with it the last hopes of Thomas for the mission of Jesus to be a reality, there still burns that little flickering fire in the heart of Thomas. And they persuade him, and Thomas is persuaded, to come and to gather with them. That, my friends, I believe shows us Thomas' love. One more thing about Thomas, my friends. I wonder what those seven days were like for that man. I wonder what those seven days were like. If we can believe that that, that candle, that little fire of love was still burning in the heart of Thomas. But there comes Monday and Tuesday and ringing in Thomas's ear, I will not believe. I will not believe. But don't forget, my friends, that also in Thomas's mind would have been that time that they stood around the grave of Lazarus and Jesus said, Lazarus, come forth. And Lazarus came out of that grave. Thomas, I will not believe. And I can imagine that the Spirit of God, Thomas's own conscience, but Thomas... What about the lame man that Jesus raised? What about the blind eyes that saw? Thomas, we saw these things. We saw the 5,000 loaves that Jesus multiplied for the feeding of the 5,000. Sorry, not the 5,000 loaves. The 5,000 people fed 
with those loaves. But Thomas, we saw those miracles. I will not believe. My friends, one of the, one of the books I, I was reading on this this week said that Thomas's unbelief was more a matter of the will than of the mind. In other words, the reasons were there for him to believe. But his will says, I will not believe. I think that must have been a very difficult week for that man. I put on the outline there Psalm 32 because I think this was Thomas's experience. When I kept silent, says David in Psalm 32, about my sin, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, thy hand was heavy upon me. My vitality, my strength, my power was drained away as with the fever heat of summer. I have to believe that was the week for Thomas. That his heart was pulled between these two things, this reality of his own unbelief and the testimony of Jesus that he had seen with his own eyes. Until finally, my friends, we can read about Jesus' love. That's my fourth point tonight, Jesus' love. Here we see, my dear friends, the good shepherd. Here we see him leave the 99 behind because he's got a Thomas to search out. He's got a Thomas to find. Do you see him, my friends? Do you see the good shepherd tonight? There he goes. He's got a room in Jerusalem. He's got to be in that room because there's a lost sheep in that room. And now Jesus, in his love, goes to seek that man. Isn't that a wonder? That this man who said, I will not believe. Why wasn't Thomas given the same outcome of Judas? Didn't Thomas say, I will not believe? But the good shepherd seeks out his lost sheep. And he comes to that room. And there he stands again in the midst of that room. And he does nothing. He appears, according to what John tells us, he appears, he says, peace be with you, and he turns immediately to Thomas. He doesn't have anything to say to Peter. He has nothing to say to this one or to that one. But there's the lost sheep. There's the one that left the ninety and nine and wandered off into the wilderness. And Jesus seeks him out. And he comes to that Thomas. I have to believe that when Jesus turned to Thomas, Thomas must have been ashamed. I must believe that his head must have fallen in embarrassment of what he had said the previous week. And what does Jesus do, my friends? He condescends to Thomas's level. You might say, Thomas had said, unless I can see the nail print, unless I can see his wounded side, I will not believe. And what does Jesus do, my friends, in all his love and tenderness as the good shepherd of his sheep? He says, Thomas, come and look. Here's the wounds, Thomas. You can put your hand into the wound on my side. You can see it for yourself, Thomas. And Thomas, of course, instantly recognizes his error and his unbelief. And he blurts out, my friends, he cries out in faith, my Lord and my God. What a beautiful picture, my friends, of the good shepherd seeking out his sheep. We saw Thomas's love as a very tiny flicker, but we see Jesus' love so great that he finds that erring sheep and he brings him back. And so, my friends, my first point of application is that there is such a thing in the life of God's people, in the life of the church, 
as weak faith. Faith that is not what it should be. And yet, my friends, for all that, it is still faith. I think I used the illustration here before, but when I fly, I don't like it. I'm very nervous when I fly. I don't have a very strong faith in the pilot or the airplane. And when I see the wings shaking a little bit, my faith starts to waver even more, right? But for all that, I still get to where I'm going. Now, the man next to me or on the other seat, right, they have complete confidence. They've never doubted for a minute that the plane is solid, the pilot is skilled, and they're going to get to where they are. Their strong faith gets them to where they're going. And my weak faith in that plane, because I still got on the plane, I still took my seat, and I still made it to the place where I was going. But either way, weak faith or strong faith, it's still faith. And in the same way, spiritually, my friends, weak faith joins us to Christ. It may be trembling. It may be weak. It may be wavering. But it's still faith, and it joins us to Christ, and therefore that saving union is made. And that person is as saved as the person who has the strong faith. Peter was just as saved with all his confidence, with all his faith, as Thomas was with all his weak and doubting faith. And so in the church of God, my friends, we find that there is a weak faith. The old theologians used to have such a precious term, For that kind of faith, they called it a refuge-taking faith. That there are some Christians who are so, uh, they see things so darkly that the best they can do is they they just take refuge in Jesus and they don't even experience the love and the assurance and the comfort that comes from that. But they take refuge in Jesus and that's still a saving faith. A refuge-taking faith. But my friends, Jesus teaches us That just as sure as there is a weak faith, there is also a more God-honoring faith. We should never be satisfied with weak faith. Sometimes we come to that point in our life where all we have left is just a a refuge-taking in God. Whatever may be the results. But there's a better faith, my friends. There's a more God-honoring faith. There's a faith that just takes Jesus at his word. And that's what Jesus says to Thomas at the end of this, at the end of this count. Uh, Thomas, Jesus says to Thomas, because you have seen me, have you believed? Okay, that's still faith. Thomas is, is saved, his sins are forgiven. But says Jesus, blessed are they who did not see and yet believed. That's the most God-honoring faith. That's the kind of faith that Isaiah talks about in Isaiah 50, verse 10. Who is among you that fears the Lord? that obeys the voice of his servant, that walks in darkness and has no light. Even though they walk in darkness, let him trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. Even if walking in darkness, it's the kind of faith that the hymn writer captured. Tis so sweet to trust in Jesus. How does it go? Do you remember? You know this one? Tis so sweet to trust in Jesus and to take him at his word just to rest upon his promise and to know, thus saith the Lord. Thomas hadn't come to that point in his life, my friends. He had to see it. He had a weak faith. But this is a better faith. This is a more God-honoring faith. When we say, Lord, you've said it. I believe it. I might be walking in darkness. I can't even see it for myself anymore. I'm full of doubts. 
but yet I trust in the name of the Lord. I'll never let go of that. That's the God-honoring faith that God celebrates. Now, my friends, we also see in this, uh, in this passage of Scripture, in the second place, a promising Jesus. Jesus gives a promise. He says to his disciples in the verses that we read, If you forgive the sins of any, their sins have been forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they have been retained. And, of course, we know that that doesn't mean, right, that the disciples could forgive sins, as the Roman Catholic Church teaches. It means that the disciples can declare, your sins have been forgiven on the authority of heaven. The disciples could proclaim to every repentant and believing sinner, your sins are forgiven. And to every unbelieving sinner, your sins are not forgiven. Your sins are on your own account yet. This is the preaching of a promising Jesus. And he extends, my friends, the word of that salvation to the ends of the earth. That if anyone is willing to trust in Jesus, their sins are forgiven them. What a blessed promise of salvation. But I hasten to my third point, because this really is the point of the sermon, a showing Jesus. That Jesus is not only a promising Jesus, but he comes even down to the weakness of those who struggle. Maybe there's someone here this evening, my friends, who struggles to believe, whose faith is full of darkness and full of doubts. Jesus comes and acknowledges the faith of even such ones, my friends, of even the wandering sheep in the congregation. Jesus says, I will show you. I will show you my wounds. I will show you my side. And how does he do that in the church, my friends? He does that through the sacraments. Jesus is a showing God. And that's why we read in that's why we read in the, in the question 66, you can see that on the outline, what are the sacraments? Now I want you to read the answer with me here. That's why I didn't bring this up until now. I want you to read this answer with me, friends, in the back, with, the, with, the, with the story of Thomas in the background. With that in your mind, read this answer with me. What are the sacraments? Sacraments are visible, holy signs and seals. They're visible. Visible, holy signs and seals. They were instituted by God so that by our use of them, he might make us understand more clearly the promise of the gospel and seal that promise. Now, my friends, we saw already in point two that Jesus is a promising Jesus. He promises. He says, those who believe in me, their sins are forgiven them. But Jesus is also a showing Jesus. And that's what the catechism says, that he might make us understand more clearly the promise of the gospel and to seal that promise. That's what he did for Thomas. And this is God's gospel promise. He grants us forgiveness of sins and eternal life by grace because of Christ's one sacrifice accomplished on the cross. That's the promise of the gospel that goes forth to everyone who hears it. This is the promise, my friends, to all of you this evening and to me, to the children and to the adults, that as soon as we lay our sins on Jesus, that very moment those sins are forgiven. And they are carried away. And lest anyone should doubt it, lest anyone should waver on the truth of that promise, God comes and he takes a table and he places it there. And he invites the weak ones in the congregation to come. The ones who are wavering, the ones who are doubting. And he says, come. And he breaks bread there and he says, look at the nail-pierced hands. Look at the wounded side. This is for the weak ones. My friends, what folly it is when I hear sometimes that people won't participate in communion because they're not sure if they're really saved. 
or they're not sure if they, if they really have strong enough faith. My friends, the sacraments were given for weak faith. They were given as God's method to strengthen the faith of those who are like Thomas and who, who live in darkness. And when the font of baptism is opened up, and when we see the waters, the cleansing waters falling upon a sinful child or a sinful adult, it preaches to us. And God says the promise of the gospel is there. It's there every Sunday. But now on this Sunday, you can see it. It's a visible preaching. And the promise of the gospel is sealed to us in a visible way so that no one will miss it. No child can miss it. Young people, children, this is for you. This is also for you. That maybe you think that, does Jesus notice me? Am am I one of his children? Am I one of his sheep? Well, he says, let me prove it to you. Let me prove it to you that as soon as you reach forth the hand of faith to take the promise of the gospel, Jesus gives us a visible proof of it. His love is made visible to us in the sacraments. My friends, what a precious truth it is that there is in God this kind of love that he will reach down to even the smallest sinner, the the, the most doubting, weak faith Christian. And he says, come Christian, come, see my love for you in these visible signs that I give you. Lord's Supper and baptism, they're for the weak ones in the congregation, for the sickly ones, for the ones who can't keep up with the Apostle Peter. There, God comes and he gives us the sacrament. We might say that it's a, I said it's a, a showing Jesus, but it's as if we could say it's a sacramental Jesus. And that gives us then our definition of the sacrament. A sacrament, a sacrament my friends, let's try to remember this, a visible sign of an invisible grace. That's easy, isn't it? A visible sign of an invisible grace. And so God gives us this visible sign, broken bread, poured out wine, sprinkled water. And he says, now this is a visible sign of my invisible grace. You can touch it. You can taste it. You can see it. That's why the pastor says every time, take, eat, remember, and believe. What is the message, my friends, of the sacraments for us? It's the same word that Jesus gave to Thomas. Be not unbelieving, but believing. That's what a sacrament does for the people of God. Now, it does that for those who have strong faith, certainly. But, my friends, it was specially designed for those who tremble, for those who hold back, for those maybe who live in darkness. For such ones, God says, take, eat, remember, Belief. Very touching story I read once in Scotland. You know, in Scotland they have this practice of there's like a rail, right? And people come up to the rail and the pastor hands out the bread and the wine to him. And, and uh, 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 John Duncan, a great Scottish theologian, was at the rail one time. And, uh, and he looked down the rail and he saw this trembling girl. And she was there at the rail, but she she let the bread pass her by. When the bread came, she let it pass. And uh, Duncan stepped forward. I I presume he was leading the service. He stepped forward, and he whispered. He says, take it, lassie. 
It's for sinners. Take it, Lassie. It's for sinners. Is there a sinner here tonight, congregation, who needs that, that bread, that wine, to seal to you the promise of the gospel? Jesus has that for you. He's provided for you every step of the way so that your faith can be strong and you can stand strong even in the darkest times. Take it, Lassie. It's for sinners. That's such a blessing, dear congregation, how low the Lord comes to his children. I put also on there the, uh, the article from the Belgic Confession, which says something similar. Let's close our sermon by reading this together then. We believe that our good God, mindful of our crudeness and weakness, has ordained sacraments for us to seal his promises in us, to pledge his goodwill and grace toward us, and also to nourish and to sustain our faith. And then notice these words, congregation. He has added these to the word of the gospel. He has added these to the word of the gospel to represent better to our external senses both what he enables us to understand by his word and what he does inwardly in our hearts, confirming in us the salvation he imparts to us. For they are visible signs and seals of something internal and invisible, by means of which God works in us through the power of the Holy Spirit. So they are not empty and hollow signs to fool and deceive us, for their truth is Jesus Christ, without whom they would be nothing. Well, my friends, I hope that every sacrament were led to say with Thomas, my Lord and my God. Amen. Let us pray. Almighty God, you know as the great shepherd of your sheep how low sometimes our faith can, can fall. Lord, this is certainly not because of who you are. Lord, we are ashamed with Thomas that our faith could falter when we know that your word is sure and steadfast. Never can it be taken away and your promise is certain of its fulfillment. But still our faith, Lord, because of our own crudeness and weakness as we confess in the Belgic Confession, our own faith falters. And Lord, what a, what a profound wonder it is that as the great physician you come and you say, come, look at my nail-pierced hands, put your hand into my side. And you give us these visible signs of your invisible grace. Lord, we confess uh, our amazement at your grace Lord, we love this fact. We love you, O Lord, for the fact that you love us in this way. Lord, grant that our faith would remain strong, that every time the sacraments come by again, Lord, we would cherish them and relish them as the great gifts that they are, that we would cry out, Lord, on our knees with weeping, perhaps, my Lord and my God. Lord, please remember us then this evening, bind these words upon our hearts, and give us great joy and gladness to go forth this week and to serve you to be your hands and your feet in this world, knowing, Lord, that you have breathed on us, even as you breathed on your disciples of old, your Holy Spirit, so that we would have a strength that is not our own. Lord, will you lift up the light of your countenance and let it shine upon us? And we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> Let's turn now on the red hymnal to number 530. Number 530, we'll sing the four verses. Teach me thy way, O Lord.
teach me thy way. Thy guiding grace afford, teach me thy way. Help me to walk aright, more by faith, less by sight. Lead me with heavenly light, teach me thy way. We'll sing the four verses of number 530 in the red hymnal.
The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun will not smite you by day nor the moon by night. The Lord will protect you from all evil. He will keep your soul. The Lord will guard your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. Amen.